welcome to the DDP podcast channel. We sincerely hope you will enjoy this episode. Don't forget to turn on your notification bell and to follow us right here on Spotify for more podcast episodes. Right, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you might be joining us today. Welcome back to the Democracy Development Program podcast uh, channel. I'm very excited for our guest that we have today. We've got Professor Anton Harbour, who's the Executive Director of Free Expression. And uh, today we are doing a reflection of South Africa's democratic journey with nearly three decades looming around the corner next year since South Africa had its first uh, free and fair elections in 1994. Uh, The 27th of April this year is uh, quite an important date, um, not only for celebration, but most importantly for the reflection on where we are standing with our democratic journey in South Africa. And that's what we're going to be unpacking in today's uh, episode. So without further ado, uh, Prof, one of the first questions I have for you is perhaps in a very short summation, um, how would you describe South Africa's current positioning uh, with democracy? Sorry, can I just, South Africa's, I mean, are we talking about the media or are we talking more widely than that? This is very general at this point. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, sorry, I thought we were specifically going to discuss the media. That's why I'm a bit um, thrown, because clearly that's my area of expertise. Anyway, let me answer your question. Um, thank you very much, and I'm delighted at the opportunity to discuss these things with you. Um, South Africa's democracy is clearly at a critical point, nearly as it approaches its 30th birthday. Um, which I think follows the pattern of many new democracies, many newly independent countries um, in the shift from being led by a liberation movement into um, the development of the next stage of democracy. But in South Africa, I think it's characterized by something of a crisis, a crisis of confidence in the constitution, in democracy, in uh, the party that has ruled the country for almost 30 years. So the election we are coming up to is an important and critical test for our democracy. Um, And it takes place at a time when we're feeling pressure from many quarters, not least of all our economy um, and the functioning of our state. So these are all matters weighing heavily on our minds as we prepare for the 30 year election. Mm. Um, Prof, you mentioned, uh, obviously, your specialty is within uh, the media space. Um, And maybe can you just draw on the relationship between media um, and political culture, particularly functioning within a democracy? Look, um, um, you ask a very interesting question because the relationship between media and government is always a difficult and complex one. Media is a very important element of any democratic system uh, because it plays the role of um, independent enforcement of accountability and transparency. Uh, So without a free and active and independent and quality media, democracy can't really exist. In South Africa, um, I would say that um, 
um, we've had a generally good record of much of the media holding the government and the state to account. Um, it's not a perfect record. Uh, we've had our lapses, we've had our difficulties, and what I say doesn't apply to all the media. Um, um, but we've always had some media that's been prepared to enforce transparency and accountability, and we are fortunate for that. Um, it has been sometimes a, a difficult relationship with the ruling party, the governing party, the ANC, um, which has sometimes been impatient with the media, um, partly because we inherited a media and a media structure and a media industry that was formed under apartheid. Um, and so and so that meant that it was shaped um, culturally and in many ways by the experience of apartheid. That was a good and a bad thing. It meant a lot of the stru structure of the media um, politically and racially um, needed to change and transform itself, a very big challenge. It also meant that we inherited um, a culture of independence, resisting censorship, resisting control, um, and enforcing accountability. So, so there were good and there were bad aspects. But we are now at a, at a critical um, turning point for our media as well. And that's because we've been seeing the news media around the world having to go through huge changes and adapt to very different economic circumstances. And uh, in South Africa too, it it uh, it has it is bringing serious challenges for our existing media. It has meant that um, some of our most important historical media, like major newspapers, um, a number of them are in serious trouble. Um, it has meant a shift to to online and social media operations, um, changing the way people produce and gather and consume news. Um, and we're reaching a, a, a very serious tipping point in the capacity of the media to deal with those challenges. Um, there's a lot you just brought up there, uh, just regarding the challenges that media um, is facing. And I'll, I'll get to that in a little bit. I just wanna go back to the point where uh, you were talking about the structure in which the media had inherited from its transition um, from pre-apartheid to post-apartheid era. Um, and I think one of the uh, perks of South African media is the diversity of our media and almost the accessibility of our media, particularly when it comes to language. The fact that a person can easily switch on, you know, SABC1, for example, and get the news in both Isikosa or Zulu and et cetera, et cetera, something that is accessible to them and that they understand. Um, but then also to a certain extent, there's been almost critique that um, the manner in which content can be presented from a cultural perspective um, can bring in uh, very specific views on how that content is presented to different people. Um, what do you say to that critique? So you raise some very interesting and important points. It's true that we have a media with some diversity. Uh, we have a rich media industry in this country. 
with a number of newspapers, a number of radio stations, um, and a number of television stations. Um, but there's also gaps in that diversity very clearly. In terms of language, um, yes, there, there is language diversity in broadcasting, uh, particularly in radio, which is the biggest medium, um, but a, a real lack of diversity in the printed and online media when it comes to language. Um, when it comes to um, the political positioning of our media, I would say that in a country which uh, has a very wide range of political views from far left to far right, the media is overwhelmingly concentrated in the center or somewhere near the center. Um, so I'm not sure it always reflects the diversity of our opinion in this country. So, um, you know, we, we have more diversity than many countries, but I don't think you ever have enough diversity, and there's certainly gaps in the diversity we've had in this country. When you talk about the journalistic culture and practices of this country, I think what's interesting was that under apartheid, we had quite diverse cultures in the English, the Afrikaans, and the Black press. And I say the press because I think those cultures were defined by the then quite dominant print media. Um, and, and there were different practices and cultures in those groupings. Um, what has happened since apartheid, I would think, is that what you would describe as the largely English, largely Western culture and practices have been dominant better or worse, the Afrikaans press um, moved from the kind of authoritarian press they had before to something more like uh, 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 the, the liberal democratic model I'm talking about. Um, and the black press, I think, as well. Um, we've always had an important independent and you could call alternative media, not always, but in critical political periods, we've had an important alternative media. Um, and sadly, that has largely fallen away in democracy, which, which also has affected our diversity. So it's a complex picture with good and bad um, um, elements. Um, let's go to those bad elements, the critical point in which media is sitting right now. Um, the fact that you know, newspapers now need to move towards online platforms um, or even I think the other day I saw uh, one of the uh, big news outlets that was already online now diversifying themselves onto social media with a TikTok page to give this brief summation of what's happening uh, in the world. Um, and I want to link that particularly with the needs of young people in this democratic culture that we have, where there's articulation from the youth in South Africa that um, they encourage uh, media to be having an online presence because that is what is digestible to them. They encourage media to um, have a TikTok page account in which they explain all these headlines. Um, what is the, the, the benefit of this online presence, number one, 
but also what's the back end of it in terms of um, those that want to have the traditional newspaper in front of them on a Sunday morning uh, with a cup of tea and feeling as though they're engaging truly with what's what's going on in the world, uh, particularly at a time now where um, with social media, not only is it decreasing itself in terms of how long segments can be, um, on average, TikTok allows someone to upload a video um, that's maximum three minutes long. How do you condense big headlines, you know, to that three minutes long, making the information accessible, but still catering to the audience that wants that uh, piece of paper? Yes, well... Um... You know, the, the 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 growth of the internet and of social media has been an enormously valuable tool for journalism and the news media. There's no question it's enhanced our work in many ways. And what it's also allowed for is for um, the propagation of news and ideas and opinions outside of the gatekeeping of the traditional media. And that can that is often a healthy thing in that there was tight gatekeeping in the traditional media scenario, whereas now there's a more of a free flow um, um, of, of opinion where citizens have access to the audience directly rather than going through all those gatekeepers. It, 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 it has raised a number of issues and problems though. One of them is the is uh, the resurgence of disinformation. Um, the absence of gatekeepers means that um, falsehoods, sometimes malicious falsehoods, sometimes anti-democratic um, malicious campaigns to undermine our society or to promote hatred or racism um, are able to be expressed um, fairly easily and openly. And that's clearly a major concern. But of greater concern is that, you know, news is complex. Um, and there are very, there are many points of view. Um, it often can't be reduced to a simple headline. And of course, the real danger um, with social media is that it all has to be crisp, short, um, um, and you cannot always capture the complexity of news developments um, in that format. So one hopes that over time, um, young people will consume through multiple platforms that, yes, allow for quick, sharp news headlines, but also takes them to more detail, more depth, more diversity of analysis, and more analysis generally. So we're in a phase of adapting and developing um, and trying to meet the challenges, the very, very big challenges and opportunities that are thrown up by social media. Yeah, I like that you mentioned the point of how the internet uh, blowing up has opened up the store of misinformation and disinformation, which oftentimes has led people down the hole of essentially deciding for themselves which side of the spectrum that they would like to be um, by a simple uh, uh, point that's been brought up uh, through a, a link, for example, that takes them down the alt-right or something to that effect. Um, in those moments where, 
a person does engage with something that is short and concise and brief, but that thing that is short and concise and brief leads them to an analysis that is dangerous and almost harmful to society. Um, what role can media play in that moment to step in and say, well, but the information you're reading right now is false. Um, it's dangerous rhetoric. It's uh, rhetoric that can place another human being's life in danger. And perhaps I know maybe speaking a little bit more broadly with things that have been happening, for example, in America with uh, the, the gun shootings, et cetera. Um, but very easily, their side in South Africa, someone can say maybe that person was justified in doing what they did because I read somewhere A, B, C, and D. Um, yes. How do you think media can navigate themselves through that uh, very dangerous uh, line of truth and misinformation and disinformation? Well, I think there's a few elements um, to the question you're asking. The first is that we, what will become increasingly important and valuable is media that has credibility. Media that isn't just churning out any rubbish, but is saying, we verified this, we've checked this, we've contextualized this, and therefore you can consume it in a way that will enrich your knowledge and information and uh, empower you. Um, and you, you need to differentiate between that kind of media, shall we call it professional media or credible media uh, or real journalism um, and, and the rubbish that's often perpetuated on the internet or on social media. Um, that requires a high level of media literacy um, and I do think it's very important that in our schools, in our factories, in our workplaces, in government, in every institution of this country, of, of our society, at all levels, we should be saying media literacy is terribly important. Um, and in all those institutions, we should be encouraging teaching and training of media literacy. But let me say two things about that. The first is that the problem of disinformation is, is worst among older people. So I think one positive thing is that all the research shows that those who are most vulnerable um, in terms of disinformation are older people who are less used to the virtual world, to dealing with online. Interestingly, young people who've grown up as, as digital natives, who, who grew up and understand that world and that culture and that practice, are more discerning about disinformation um, and information. And I think that's a positive thing. The second is that the production of credible, trustworthy, professional journalism costs money. And we're grappling for how that should be paid. So the other thing we have to get across, I think, to consumers is that if you want good, reliable, trustworthy journalism and analysis and information, it has to be paid for in some way. Um, whether it's you pay as an individual or the state pays for it or whoever pays for it, it has to be paid for. And that's an adjustment um, we have to go through and accept in order to ensure that we meet that need for reliable, trustworthy, proper, professional journalism. 
Uh, Prof, let's bring it down a little bit now to uh, the 2024 elections um, that are just around the corner. And the fact that we know that media is extremely crucial at this moment in terms of how different political parties are relayed, how different manifestos are perhaps put out into the public, uh, the different views political parties have, um, and the reporting of the engagements within political parties. And I know um, most recently a lot of focus on the media has been within the local context, how coalition governance has been working out or hasn't been working out to a certain extent. Um, And considering the fact that there's projections that we might be seeing this coalition governance coming up into the national um, elections. Uh, what do you think is the role of media in terms of election information, number one, um, but number two, in terms of how they portray and convey different political parties, not just mainstream political parties, but upcoming ones as well? So media is clearly very central to any election um, in ensuring that citizens go to the polls well-informed, well-equipped to make the decisions that will affect their lives, that they're not just making them, excuse me, based on disinformation or conflictual information, but they go well-informed to make those decisions. Um, I think... Um, media has a special responsibility in election time to ensure that it covers all political parties and fully, and that it asks the right questions, um, um, holding all to account. So I think there's often a danger that elections are covered um, like a rugby game, you know, this one's in the lead. Here's this one just scored some interesting points. Um, the captain here is uh, being sent off the field, um, and it just follows it in that kind of way. And it's very important that we step back and say that we 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 we've got to question every party and every candidate, one for the quality of the candidates and the leadership they're offering their character, their records, et cetera, and two, for a close examination of alternative policies. Um, So to push parties to go beyond the rhetoric and the empty promises, um, but to say, how will you run this country and the economy better? Let's look at your track record as an individual or as a party, to ask all these difficult and tough questions, to ask them of everyone, because it's the answers to those questions. In a way, those questions define the information that people will use to make their decision. That kind of questioning um, is terribly, terribly important so that we don't just treat it um, like a rugby game, but treat it as something in which people need to know the answers to some very important and difficult questions. I think you touch on uh, something that we had spoken about in our previous podcast of the fact that in a healthy democratic culture, there 
society needs to feel like democracy is a lived experience. It's an everyday experience and not just those moments where the rugby game uh, is coming up. And um, almost to a certain extent, then that extends definitely to media that we know that there's going to be special segments just around the time that um, the elections are going to come up, but it's just, oh, who do you think is going to win and who's going to make it, et cetera. So that's all that's going to be pumped in. But now in this moment are the most critical times in which, uh, you know, our leaders can be held into account, questioning them. What are they bringing to the table? So people have enough time to be informed, enough time to go read the manifesto, to consult. Is this truly what I want to go towards to? Um, And I definitely think our media culture has a long way to go with regards to bridging that. Um, And then, Prof, maybe just one last question before um, I let you go. I think Freedom Day, even though now today South Africans are very happy that there's just a public holiday where you can bry and relax for a little bit, um, just back on, again, on a general front, right? That day for many South Africans was a day of hope and a day of dreaming of what they would like their society to look like. Um, And for many, they feel as though that dream is dying out for others that weren't even born uh, when that day had arrived, it feels as though it's such a foreign concept to them that you can even have hope in today's society. I just want you to tell me what is the importance of protecting democratic legitimacy and a political culture that roots itself in democratic values? There's no question, as I said earlier, that our democracy, our constitution um, are looking wobbly um, uh, because many young people have lost faith in the institutions of democracy and the functioning of democracy and its capacity to deliver. There's no question that to restore that, we have to get our economy back on track. We have to get our economy growing And people have to feel the benefits of democracy in their everyday lives. Not promises, not hope, but rooted in their their everyday life has to show not, not that everyone is going to be happy and wealthy and comfortable and safe, but they should feel that um, they are happier and wealthier and safer um, than they were previously that we're moving in the direction where democracy is delivering those very important fundamentals, not delivering ideas and promises, but real change to everybody's daily life and challenging the inequalities that still so trouble our society. So that's what's important to me. Um, and that's what people need to feel if they're going to, if they're going to keep faith in democracy and our constitution. Perfect. Thank you so much, Prof Harbour, for uh, this conversation. It was very enriching and I uh, enjoyed it. Uh, We're looking forward to uh, hosting you at our media summit, uh, which is coming up on the 18th of May. 
ladies and gents, be on the lookout for that on our social media platforms. And uh, Prof. Harbour will be elaborating on this conversation in greater detail. And uh, we look forward to hosting you, Prof, and we look forward to hosting you, our audience, um, at that event. Um, but otherwise, let me end the podcast over here. Prof, thank you so much. Uh, do appreciate it. To everybody else listening at home, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we cannot wait to have you listen to our next podcast. Well, we really hope you enjoyed this episode. Check out our social media pages at DDP underscore democracy to engage with more of our content. Or you can head on over to our website at ddp.org.za to keep up with any events that we might have planned for you. Thank you once again for joining us.